Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I am Timothy George, usually the host of the Beeson Podcast, but today we have a special host, Hayden Walker, on behalf of the Lilly Grant Initiative to Strengthen the Quality of Preaching. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. My guest with me today is Dr. Liam Golger. He's the senior minister at the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where he began serving in 2011. Originally from Scotland, Dr. Golger served churches in Ireland, Canada, Scotland, England, and the U.S. over the past 44 years. He's the author of four books, including Joseph, the Hidden Hand of God. Dr. Golliger is at Beeson as our 27th Annual Biblical Studies Lecturer in collaboration with the Lilly Endowment Grant to strengthen the quality of preaching. This endowment was awarded to Beeson to strengthen preaching through the use of new course offerings, initiative pulpit exchanges, and quality peer groups of pastors and current Master of Divinity students. Dr. Golliger, welcome. Thank you for being here today with us. Thank you for having me. A few questions for you. Um, when did you first feel called to ministry? I guess that goes pretty far back. I, I grew up in a Christian home. I don't remember a time when I didn't love the Lord Jesus. Uh, I was very close to my grandmother um, and my, my aunts. But my grandmother in particular used to tell me stories about preachers she had heard. Uh, she lived in Glasgow, and in uh, during the period 1930s, 40s, I was not alive then, uh, <laughs> she, th- she heard many famous preachers come through <clears throat> Glasgow, people like Don Gray Barnhouse, who was the minister of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, and a young Billy Graham before he became famous. He came with another group, Cliff Barrows and his team, and Billy was just the preacher. She would tell me these stories about these great preachers she'd heard, and that's kind of spiked my imagination. I remember finding a little leaflet, a little prayer card for Don Gray Barnhouse's services in Glasgow, and I kept that little card most of my life. I still have it. So when I, w- when I was about 10, my father took me to a little tin hut where a man was organizing youth events, and he was playing a movie that night, a Billy Graham movie. And it was an old movie. It was an old then, so it was Billy as a young man, very dynamic. And I was mesmerized by his preaching and thought, this is what real preaching looks like. So when I home that night, I repeated Billy's sermon in my bedroom to my brother and uh, tried to kind of mimic his actions and his accent, actually. Uh, but that that night was quite decisive for me. I remember say, saying to God, I want to preach like Billy Graham. And that was a Saturday night. Monday morning, I went down to the public library. Now, I only had a ticket for the junior library. So I took my parents' tickets for the adult library, and I went in there, and I took out the first five books that were there, six books. And I brought them home. The first book, by the way, was a book by Karl Barth called Evangelical Theology. So I tried to read that. I went through it. But I, I did think that he had some dodgy ideas. I couldn't put my finger on what they might be, but I, it didn't, kind of, not all of it rung true. Some of it was very, very interesting to me. But I just started reading theology, reading my Bible, trying to read it through twice a year, reading theology, anything I could get my hands on, getting second-hand theology books, finding books that were obviously modernistic and were attacking the faith completely. And actually, it was through reading the books that were attacking the faith that I began to revisit the Bible, and I emerged really out of that process. By the time I was 14, I would have told you that I was a card-carrying, reformed 
evangelical Christian. And I knew clearly what I believed at that point. But during that period, so starting about 10, I started preparing sermons and going out into the fields behind our house and practicing preaching. My preaching was so successful, many cows came uh, down to the river and drank while they were listening. And uh, it wasn't until I was probably, I, I actually, believe it or not, was quite, quite shy as well, so I didn't, uh, I didn't push myself. But I started preaching to real people and not cows when I was about 14. And by the time I was 15, I was filling in local churches. And um, all of these experiences just kind of confirmed to me that this was the direction my life should take. So everything I started studying at school, high school and then college, was with a view to laying a foundation of material that would be useful going forward. So I was ready for seminary. And when I got to seminary, it was a bit boring because I'd read all the stuff <laughs> that, they were, that they were reading. But the, but the focus of my, the passion of my heart was to preach the Word. So I would preach everywhere. Even when I was, in my, even when I was a teenager, as a 15-year-old, I would preach in the break. I'd go to the local dance hall, and I took some of my friends, and they, they filled in the, the, the break in the middle between the two bands by singing, and then I'd give a brief talk. And we went into coffee bars and we in fact we rented a coffee bar from somebody so that we could get people in the town and kids young people in the town and I preached the gospel to them uh, we we led a big Jesus march I remember we had about 6,000 people into the main square in Glasgow and nobody had thought what to do when all these young people converged in the main square so we'd gone through the town saying Jesus we got there nothing was planned so I got up to speak and spoke to them and, and uh, got on television as a result. So it was, I was just driven by a desire to get the gospel out, to be an evangelist. I wanted to be an evangelist more than anything else. And by the time I was uh, 18 or 17, I, I came to a crisis where I felt that th this had not just to be a hobby, it had not just to be something I wanted to do. I need some, needed some confirmation from God. It was the right thing. So I remember praying one morning and reading in my Bible the next passage that was to read, Jeremiah chapter 1. And the words, before you were born, conceived in the womb, I knew you and ordained you a prophet, um, struck me. I went to college that day and a friend of mine invited me around for lunch and his wife said at lunch, Liam, I, I felt led to pray for you today. And while I was praying, the words of Jeremiah chapter 1 came to mind. Wow. And then I went out that evening to a meeting, and the guy came to preach at this meeting in Glasgow, and he preached on Jeremiah chapter 1. So I kind of figured that that was, that God was telling me something, that I felt that kind of conviction, that that was my own interior call was confirmed. And then I went to the deacons of my church, the leaders of my church, and asked them what they thought. And they all said, well, we're glad you came because we really believe God's got his hand on you. So it was confirmed not just in myself, but by the church. Wow, that's a powerful story. I really felt, you know, in the grip of this. I mean, I felt that woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. It was, I, had no, I had no alternative, really. There was nothing else that I could do, no other route that I could take. And I think over the years, people have tried to divert me into other things, and I've had to focus on that one thing. On the initial call. You mentioned your grandmother and her influence on your spiritual development and, and call to preach. Um, how did she respond? She, she of course, she'd 
she died when I was 16. So, but, but in the years, in, in those years, she fed me books. She encouraged me in every possible way. She also helped me to be a balanced. I mean, I could have very easily become imbalanced. And she helped me to be balanced. So I remember mentioning the Beatles once. The Beatles were the band that were in it. Or maybe just passed. And instead of saying, oh, you just don't listen. She said, oh, I think you should listen to them. She said, <laughs> I think she, she, you know, she fed me books to read and I read, you know, very widely and I really basically adored her. She was, she was my hero and um, I think she helped. My mother would have been much more hardline. <laughs> and even when I, even when I developed my own theological understanding, she said, don't, you know, don't get too worked up and take it too seriously. My grandmother would never have said that, you know, she just was much more balanced in every way, got me interested in other things as well as that, so that that kept me sane and sober. Well, she introduced you to Billy Graham. Are there other preaching heroes that have been influential for you? So I think when I started preaching as a Glasgow boy in Scotland at the age of 14, people used to be amazed that I preached with a North Carolina, Carolina accent <laughs> <laughs> because I'd been, I'd been copying Billy Graham's. <laughs> he was my hero, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's really quite funny. But when I was 15, I was preaching, I was preaching in the open air at, at, a, at a youth thing down by the beach, by the shore, and a lady who was there, a Christian woman, told me that she, I needed to hear someone who was coming to visit Glasgow and that we should meet up, a bunch of us, uh, at the beginning of September and hear this man. So that's what we did. We went into this gathering up in, uh, in Glasgow in a big church there. And I remember wondering who this was going to be. I, you know, I, the, the name didn't mean much to me. I, I looked at the platform. I was trying to look for who this dynamic speaker would be. Billy Graham's in my head. You know, he's the model. <laughs> uh, nobody. There was an old, man, an old man who had an overcoat on, on the platform. And in the hymn before the sermon, I saw this man take his overcoat off and wrap it up and put it down. And then when everybody's saying that he comes to the podium and I'm thinking, uh-oh. And he started off with a very nasally tone and he said, my dear friends, I want to return to Hebrews chapter 13. And, and I'm thinking, what? I could hardly make out what he was saying. An hour later, I was at the edge of my seat. I have never heard preaching like it, ever, since. It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And in the flesh, Lloyd-Jones was unsurpassable. I mean, he, nothing to look at, but there was, a, there was a sense of God. I think that's all. I, I remember finishing as a 15-year-old boy hearing that sermon at the edge of my seat and saying to God, you can take me to heaven now. I've heard real preaching. It was, uh, it was really outstanding. I mean, it was just, it was in a class of its own. I mean, you couldn't say he was a good preacher. It was like nothing else. I tried copying that, it didn't work. <laughs> you can't copy other people, you've got to find yourself <laughs> and your own voice. That's interesting that you say that about, about Lloyd-Jones being there in person, mm. because he, he wrote you know, that the preaching yeah. moment can never be reduplicated no, by tape or anything no. else. He demonstrated that. I mean, there's no doubt you had to be there. Even if you heard it on tape, it didn't have the same impact as being there in the moment. And it wasn't that he had a big part, it was a small man. Uh, actually, there's a, there's a carry-on from that story because in my last church, which was in London, I remember 
a lady and her husband used to sneak in just before the sermon. They didn't come for the rest of the service. They just snuck in before the sermon. And then they would leave the minute the sermon was over. And this went on and on and on. I wondered who these people were. Eventually I found out who it was. It was Dr. Lloyd-Jones's younger daughter. And uh, I think she had gone right since her father died. She went around different churches looking for whatever, you know, and never found it. I remember the, best, the greatest compliment I was ever paid in my life was when Anne said to me one day, this is the first time since my father died that I feel safe coming to church. That, that you'll handle the Word of God, you know, properly and preach it to me. Oh, that's pretty amazing. It's a high compliment. Yeah, that's really amazing. Well, your <laughs> accent of, of Dr. Lloyd-Jones was excellent. I picked up on it right away. You did. Um, but uh, accents aside, mm. um, how have you found your own voice in, in preaching? Yeah, I think when I first started preaching, I tried to be people I admired. I remember hearing John, St I was in my first church perhaps six months, and John Stock came to Belfast in Ireland where I was working. And I went to hear him. Now, John Stock stood impassive. He never moved an arm. He just stood there. He may have held his notes and he spoke and there was little inflection in his voice, you know, not, not a lot. He was very powerful in his preaching. I mean, it really impacted you. But if you, if you analyze what he did, there was very little in terms of movement or range. But it was, again, I think the presence and the impact of his words. Every word was well chosen, slow, deliberate. So, which is an illustration that you cannot, you carbon copy preachers. Preacher is got to be their own person. So I did try to be like John Lloyd Jones for a couple of weeks. That, that didn't work. That was, that was never going to work because I can't not use my hands. <laughs> and I get quite excited and so I raise my voice or, you know. So uh, that was never going to happen. So I think basically in in the second five-year period of my life, I found myself, I, I really tried very hard to be a sober preacher, not joke around, take it seriously, because, you know, these other preachers like Lloyd-Jones never, well, I think Lloyd-Jones did joke once or twice, but it was not a feature. And then I remember finding, giving myself permission just to be myself, really. Some people don't, don't like that, you know, they did not like humour, whatever. Maybe they didn't like my humour, but that's just, you know, I don't think some people just did not like humor. So, but so there's a bit of humor thrown in, but it's not, it's not deliberate. It usually comes to be on the moment, which is very dangerous, <laughs> very dangerous. But I think it's, I think you have to be yourself. What are your regular methods of sermon preparation? Everybody's different, of course. I, I tend to start, I, I preach three times a week. When in my first church at the age of 22, I had to prepare four different sermons. I was just a sermon machine, basically. And, and in that first church, I was the only person I had to visit in the afternoons. I had to do outtake, you know, create outreach teams and start a youth fellowship and start children's work. I did all of that, which you do when you're enthusiastic and you're young and you've got the energy and so on. And I loved doing that. But I still preach three times on a Sunday, so I'm preparing only two sermons now. Although my, the elders at 10th complained that when they went to the 9 o'clock service and they sat on till, uh, through the 11, that the sermons are not the same. This is because of the way I preach. I, can, I preach to the people who are there, and I will alter the weight that I give to certain things in relation to the kind of response that I'm getting from the people who are there. I, s I start Monday morning, 
Some people are prepared a week ahead of time. I could not do that. It's a kind of it's more of a dynamic experience for me. Monday morning early, I'm reading the text again that I'm going to do. Probably still at that point, deciding how much of the next bit, because I preach through books of the Bible, how much of the next bit I'll do. That usually isn't decided until I've actually spent a couple of days on the text, which really annoys our administrative people because they like to announce mm -hmm. ahead of time. But what I'm doing then, I say, well, the Holy Spirit's not told me yet, so we'll just wait. <laughs> so I, I do that. I then, I then do the exegetical stuff to try to get the structure right. And again, the weight which the writer is putting on different things. In my understanding, any text of Scripture is really thick with meaning. And there may be a prevailing idea, but all those other ideas are meant to be important too. And it's, the task is discovering where the, where the author puts his weight as he's standing, you know, on this leg or that leg. He's, he's putting his weight down somewhere. And that, that probably guides your approach to the text uh, and then from there on you then can assemble everything else around that um, which is the, the technique I try to, to follow in other words I try to let the text dictate to me what it's doing and then I, my points then are how the various movements of the text relate to that main idea then when I've done that exegetical work I then would read I mean I'm reading I'm reading biblical theology a lot I, I have always from Seminary, seminary day has really been very interested in how the storyline of the Bible carries the plot. I'm also very interested in systematic theology. Usually people who are into biblical theology aren't into systematic theology, and there's a, you know, which means they kind of lose the plot sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, systematic theologians, they need to remember the plot. So I, I, I'm into both of those in a big way. I love reading systematic theology. But I also love biblical theology. I'm excited about that. I have always, from my first church, I think, preferred to read, rather than read books about, about it, I do, I do read books about it, but very often it's papers that people have written, maybe doing their PhD on a particular idea or theme, that are often actually more productive for the preacher than reading books, because the, the books are usually way out of date by the time they're printed, you know, and there's more and more academic work being done. And I've always been interested to, to read the up-to-date stuff if I possibly can. Because I believe in the pastor-scholar. I believe the pastor should be a scholar as well. Liam, have you had a community um, of other preachers around you that have helped keep that scholarly passion burning? Only remotely. You know, I think I do envy those that do. I've always been, or I've often been, in quite obscure places. My first church in Belfast was in what we call a housing estate, which is a kind of um, project. It was not the kind of place where you'd other people doing that, but I, I taught those people as if I was teaching, you know. Um, second place was out in the middle of Canada in a country area. Canada, I think, I had more input there in those four years. Then I went to Scotland for 20 years, and that was a really barren time for me. It was really hard. I felt I was on my own. The men that I did know were not really into preaching, they were into programs and that kind of thing. It was actually during those 20 years that I made my name, if you like, in terms of 
speaking at conferences and, and things like that. But, but I was carving my own furrow or whatever. That was probably good too. I think uh, it helped me be myself. I'm really grateful that since coming to 10th in America, I'm now, I, don't, I now have people, I know more people here who are, who are you know, a great help to me and, and have their input. Because there just is more here than in Britain. Britain mm-hmm. is not America, you know. And if I was in Scotland, most of the people who were interested were into theology and stuff and could have helped were down in the southeast of England or ten- tended to be down there. Ministers in Britain were not paid very much, so going to conferences was virtually a no-no. Mm-hmm. And, and when we had five children, I, I made a decision early on that my priority would be the children. So I would tend to stay around. I tend to arrange meetings so that I could put them to bed, read their story, carry on, have tickle fights and so on, all the things that... And because uh, I love being a dad. Hmm. Um, other than the community aspect, were there other big differences in pastoring in Britain versus the U.S. for you? Well, I think... I think uh, Yes, I, in Britain typically there were no team ministries, so you you were on your own. So when I was in Belfast, I was the only person on staff. There wasn't even administrative staff; it was just me. And when I came back from Canada, Canada I had a staff. But when I came back from Canada for six years, I was in Airdrie, the first church I was there. There was nobody; it's just me doing everything, visiting, burying, marrying, whatever. <laughs> and I'd also preaching. And it was only in my second church in Scotland that we began to develop a church staff, and we were one of the first churches in Scotland to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I left there. That church grew to be quite a big church. I left that to go back to a small church in London, where I was back down to myself again <laughs> to start. And then we gradually broke built a team ministry there. So coming to the States, I'm coming to a church that has had preachers in the past. I have more or less, that's all I do now, you know. I mean, it's not all I do, but it's the main, my main thing, and they know that's my main thing. And I don't have people being critical because I'm not going around the houses visiting them. And so so that's the advantage, I think, for me. And And, and also, I mean, I came to a church that was already big. I mean, it's you know, nearly 2,000 people, but it's, so it's fair-sized congregation. Is the congregational receptivity to preaching been different in the different congregations that you've yes, served? It was, yeah, it has. So people could take it or leave it. I, my experience in, in Britain is people can take it or leave it. Whereas, I, you know, I, come, I would come to America or even Canada and people really wanted the preaching of the Word. Which is, I don't know why that is. It's interesting. The, yeah. the hunger is different. You mentioned earlier that you have preached from housing estates to you know large conferences and, and things, certainly in seminary settings. How do you adjust, even on a Sunday morning with two different services, how do you adjust um, to your audience? How do you read them and, and know what specifically they need to hear? So I come in early and sit in the pulpit and as people are arriving and I'm catching their eye and smiling into them and so on. I, and I, I look at them 
and I read them, and I love them, and I'm praying for them, and so on. And when I get up to preach, I like to be so well prepared I, that I don't really need notes. And anyway, I'm going to have, I'm not going to use the notes anyway. But you, the notes would make no sense to anybody else. They're they're an aid memoir to me, you know. Um, so once I get going, they affect me. If they start nodding off, that affects me. I'm thinking, wake up. <laughs> it's it's a dynamic. The congregation makes the preacher. I'm quite sure that there is an element in which it's the congregation make the preacher. If the people are hungry and they're praying for you, they draw it out of you. And the people at tenth certainly do that for me. It's just, uh, I just feel as if I'm so privileged at this stage of my life to have a church that actually is into it, you know. That congregational interplay has to have some wait for the preaching moment, mm. you know, as a mm. live experience versus you preaching to a microphone well, in a closed room. Yeah. Yeah, I need, I actually need to do that. I remember trying to tape television shows once in Canada and it really was a disaster because I, I, I need to see who I'm talking to, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'd be useless to that. How do you see... Um the role and interaction of the Holy Spirit from sermon preparation to sermon delivery? That's a very good question because I think people will sometimes say to me, so where do you get your spiritual food? You know, how, how, how does God speak to you? And I have to honestly say to them, I get it from the same place you get it from. I get it from Sunday's sermon. That's where I get it. God speaks to me on Sunday as much as he speaks to you. And not not just on the Sunday, but in the in the process reading up, I I really ask God to speak to me through the text, and which He does. But even on Sundays, I find myself saying things on Sunday that I couldn't, that I would never have thought of saying. They come from the text. It's a, it's an application of the text, or it's a a point the text raises that I didn't see, or that I probably saw but didn't really fo- focus on. And yet, when I'm preaching on Sunday. That I say that, and I'm thinking as I'm saying it, wow, why did I not say that before? You know, that's for me. You know, sometimes I say to the congregation, that bit there was, that was for me, if it's not for any of you here. That interaction of the Holy Spirit in it the is. preaching moment is powerful because, you know, the congregation is just overhearing the overflow yeah. of your own spiritual yeah. conversation with I think that's what I think that's what it should be. They should be hearing the overflow of my relationship with God and what God has been saying to me and through me to them so that we're all hearing this together in one place at this moment. Earlier, Liam, you mentioned your interest in biblical theology. How does that interplay with your um, preaching? If you're you know, going through a New Testament book, how are you using um, the meta narrative as a whole? So going through the New Testament, the amount of references, allusions to language of Old Testament. You need to constantly have your antennae up to, to recognize that because it's all over the place. They as, the New Testament writers assume you're reading the Old Testament. They just assume it. Basically, they're saying, here's the points, fill it all in from the Old Testament, you know, because that's what they're assuming. So I, you start with that principle. And then it works 
backwards as well. I, I love preaching the Old Testament. I think I'm quite good at preaching the Old Testament. People have told me that that's... And, and I would never have thought that. I always thought I was a Pauline epistle man, but apparently I'm quite good at the Old Testament. And I think it's because I found out early on that actually if you go to the New Testament usage of the Old Testament, very often they give you the key to unpacking what was going on there. I am going to be looking tomorrow uh, at how you, we preach the Trinity from the Old Testament. Because we forget that the people who came up with the doctrine of the Trinity, as they're formulating it, are, are not only dependent on the apostles, they're dependent on the Old Testament. I remember I had to study Athanasius in my first six months of seminary, and Athanasius on the Incarnation is drawing, I mean, his, he ex, he's expounding Old Testament paragraphs and sections. And what you find from the New Testament going back to the Old is not so much typology. There is typology in the Old Testament, but a lot of things that are labeled typology aren't typology at all. They're, they're conversations. Let me give you an illustration. In, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 begins actually in 5213. The chapter's in the wrong place. But at the beginning of that, God, it's obviously God, is saying, behold my servant. So he's, he's saying to Isaiah, here's my servant. Look at him. He is going to be exalted, lifted high, high and lifted up and exalted. Terminology which is only used of God himself in the rest of Isaiah. Three other references, but it only refers to God himself. So he's saying about the servant, the servant is going to have the same status as God. He's going to share the same status as God. He's going to sit on the throne of God. He no sooner says that than he goes on to talk about that he was marred beyond recognition. His face beaten to pulp. And as, as the Father, God, is talking about the Son, there is a, there's a section that's really hard. Well, it's, it's usually translated correctly, but it kind of seems disjointed because the Father's suddenly not talking to us or to the prophet. He's talking to somebody else. As many as were astonished at you. It's almost like he's just said, behold the servant. The servant's there. In the vision that Isaiah is receiving, the servant is right there. And the Father says, behold my servant. And then he's talking about the servant. And when he comes to talk about the agonies of the servant, the father can't help himself but address the son as, as if he's shaking his head and saying, as many as were astonished at the way you looked. You know. And then he turns back to tell us more. Now those little things, those little conversational things are telling us something about the nature of the father's love for his son. They're an insight into the workings of the Trinity. I mean, Psalm 110 is the most widely known example of this, where the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So weird. You know, God said to God, sit at my right hand. And there are, whole, there are whole sections of that where speakers are not identified, but and only in light of the New Testament do we know who's talking to whom. And when you begin to see that, it's really very exciting. And, and when you realize that this is not a new novel reading of the Old Testament, but when you go back to Clement and Athanasius and Jerome and Augustine and so on, this has been the way in which the early church fathers got to grips with some of the things they said about the triune Godhead, you know, that they, they listened to these conversations. And... Uh, and it led them into knowledge of, of God. So it's really exciting stuff. It is exciting stuff. And excellent preaching material. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's very personal. Yes, it is.
Which preaching is. Preaching mm-hmm. must be personal. It's got to be personal. How do you relate to your congregation? How do you maintain this personal connection with them to know them and be able to speak into their lives? When I went to 10th, it was usual for the, for the preacher to stand at the front, to come down from the platform pulpit and stand. And anybody that wanted to go and see him could do that. I wanted to go to the door and shake hands with everybody that's sort of leaving, you know. <laughs> which is which means I've got real good muscles in my right hand. <laughs> the reason being I wanted I want to be as close to the people as I can. I mean that was just it's that that is a that's a symbol of how close I want to get to them. It's not really getting close to them, but it's a, it's telling them I want to be with you. And I think people have taken a cue from that and so although I'm not doing general pastoral work, I am doing pastoral work in, I'm kind of touching down in, in specific people. Not, it's not just the leadership. These are just ordinary things that come across my path. I've said to the staff, there are things that come across your path. Circumstances bring people across your path. And it's your job to look after those people. And, and so that's what I do. I don't advertise it, but I am very involved in young people and their families and so on. Yeah. Oh, it makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Apart from Scripture and the Church Fathers, are there other books that have been very influential in your ministry and preaching life? Interestingly, other people's sermons are not helpful. I used to collect other people's sermons. They, do, they just frustrate you because you can't preach like them. And you can't do it. it doesn't sound like you if you try to. So I used to enjoy listening to other preachers preach if I could get to see them or hear them. Then that became increasingly less possible, really. Unless I was at a conference, then I could hear him. My favorite systematic theology is Herman Bavinck, because he's warm, he's worshipful. Um, Gerhard is Voss, biblical theology, and more latterly, Beale, who does a lot of biblical theology. He's very helpful. In preaching, the thing to work on is the text, understanding the text, the theology, the biblical theology stuff. Work at that as if you were a scholar. Get that stuff, and, and, and then, and that's what I do. So I prepare my material, the, the stuff I've got to say. And I will not preach it all. I'll just preach some of it. But I've got all that. And then, only after I've done that, do I then start thinking about, now, how can I tie this into their world? That's the last thing I do. I need to know what it is I'm tying into their world. If I start off by thinking about the world and what needs to be said, I'm letting the world set the agenda. But if I start off with the Word of God and let it set the agenda, then I'm looking at the world through the prism of the Word and I'm, and I'm seeing the world in a different way. And that helps me identify the ways in, which I will often start with or surprise them with halfway through, you know, something they're not expecting in terms of how it applies to them. Do you find that application after that process comes as an easy portion, or is that sometimes a challenging part of your preparation? So I think everybody's different, of course. Um, I try not to think too much about it. So I I basically, I get the, I like to be ready by Friday lunchtime. I've got all of the material I'm going to use ready by then. So from then on, I try to kind of empty my head of everything, um, which isn't hard for me in my head. Uh, and then just kind of absorb everything that's going on around me. You know, go to the movies, you know, talk to people, meet up, you know, just ordinary stuff. So that by the time we go to bed, things are beginning to make sense. Sometimes I don't know how I'm going to, s- how I'm going to start my sermon. Like, 
I'm sitting on the platform and think, well, I could go with my old line, turn in your Bible too, or <laughs> whatever. The first words are still the hardest words, even if it's just that, just getting going, getting going. And I've never been let down yet, because I'm thinking about it all the time anyway. You know, I mean, it is going, but at least by Friday lunchtime, I've got something to think about. You know, it's all there. And, and, and then there are the, the asides that I make. And someone will come up to me afterwards, you know, and you said this and that changed my life. And I'm thinking, I don't remember even saying that. You know, it was one of those asides that are God-given asides, you know. After four decades of preaching and sometimes multiple sermons a week, you've certainly re-preached many texts. Do you go through that whole process again? I really can't use anything I've used before. It doesn't make any sense to me. And anyway... Frankly, I love getting back into it and seeing it because it's all new, you know. I've learned so much in the process. The Spirit always brings a fresh oh, word. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it's, it's so exciting. It is the most, I just think every day, I'm so blessed, really, to do the thing I love the most in my life and get paid for it. I mean, it's, <laughs> I would pay them to let me do this. <laughs> yeah. That's when you know you're serving in your calling, I suppose. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Beeson's goal is to train pastors who can preach. So what final advice would you give to aspiring preachers? Give yourself to it. Give yourself to it emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Believe that uh, what, what, our, what our people need more than anything else in their lives is to know that God is speaking to them. Some people say, God told me this, God told me that. And I've told our congregation, when you go out of here today, you can turn around to anybody you meet and say, God spoke to me today, because he did. Not only did he speak to me, but he spoke to several hundred other people here who can confirm that that's what he said. Mm. <laughs> that's better than having a voice in your head Absolutely. telling you something. You know, and the old um, Reformed Confession says, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now, that's not to say the Bible isn't the Word of God when it's sitting there, but it's to say that that Word is to be preached to the people and received by them for what it is. As I write to the, as Paul says in Thessalonians, you received the message as it really is the Word of God. And if you've got that conviction, if you have that conviction and you nurture that conviction, then God will use your, your ministry. And by God using your ministry, I don't mean you become famous or you've got a big church. That's immaterial. I've been big and we, and I've gone from big to we. <laughs> and because that does not matter. That does not matter. What matters is your faithfulness and going on and finishing well. How have you nurtured that conviction um, of preaching as the Word of God in your own life? By preaching it to myself, <laughs> you know. And, and I think it never gets old. It never gets old. Seriously. I mean, you're doing the same job. No, it's not the same job. It's not. It's, it's new every time. I sometimes get up when I've been studying, I get up and I walk around the room, all excited, you know. <laughs> Nobody's there to watch me or see me. And, and it's like, wow, I never saw that before. Or felt it before, or felt the impact of it before. It's new every morning. It's just amazing. That newness is a testament to the living and active um, character of the Word of God. That's right, absolutely. 
that um, will carry and sustain preachers through any duration of ministry. My guest on the Beeson podcast today has been Dr. Liam Gallagher, Senior Minister at 10th Presbyterian Church. Thank you, Liam, so much for this wonderful conversation on preaching. Well, thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.